0: Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane all Alrighty friends, welcome back to another conversation here on the Cattleman's Call podcast. I'm Lane Nordland and uh, the dust has not settled on election 2022. We are just a few days out from election day and uh, some race is still yet to be decided. We have a runoff occurring in the state of Georgia, for that u s Senate race, and uh, so there 's a lot in the air in terms of the United States Senate and which party will be uh, taking lead of the chamber. but uh, one thing we know that the House of uh, Representatives going to be controlled by the Republicans, so that 's going to be our discussion today. How is the shift? in Washington D.C. going to impact agriculture. More specifically the upcoming farm bill which negotiations are already underway definitely going to be shaped much differently with the changing of the guard in the house itself. Uh, So joining us here today uh, from Washington D.C. the NCBA office out there of course uh, Mr. Ethan Lane NCBA's vice president of government affairs along with David Watts and David managed Don Bacon's race out of Nebraska and Ray. and Deering's race out of Michigan and uh, knows these cycles in and out in terms of uh, how a congressional race shapes things but uh, uh, gentlemen h- how are things going Ethan I'll start with you first uh, we're a few days at- out now from the election uh, what's it like out in Washington DC if when when you're maybe out at lunch or maybe talking with some of uh, your contacts up on Capitol Hill
1: well, Lane, I, I think that, you know, first and foremost, a lot of us are now uh, starting to turn our attention to to you know what the game looks like moving forward here in Washington. Um, you know, and like you said, even though we're still waiting on a tremendous amount of results around the country, and the Senate is, is most certainly in an extreme amount of flux, um, we are getting a little bit more clarity on the House side. We have, you know, at least eight Republican flips at this point, and save... Uh, for some kind of real disaster in California or a real shift in some of those outstanding races, that's enough to at least get them over the finish line as far as control of the, of the house of representatives. But you know, what it, what it doesn't give us is clarity on what that leadership footprint is going to look like. You know, Kevin McCarthy has been at this game for a very long time going back to before Paul Ryan was speaker. Um, and, and one thing that's been like a hallmark, I think, of, of his time um, waiting to be speaker is, um, you know, call it Tea Party, call it that evolution of Tea Party through Freedom Caucus, but that, that far right wing of the Republican Party um, and, and their sort of difference in perspective on what governing looks like, um, what compromise looks like, uh, what they want to be able to communicate back to their constituents um, and, and that is, is clearly a big focus, I think, of, of, of the policy implications of this week's elections now is, is what, what does the Republican Party do with the House of Representatives, given what we've learned this week and, and the new members coming to town?
0: And David, for yourself, uh, before I before we dive into the uh, uh, recapping this past week, uh, maybe Mm -hmm. maybe just share a little bit about uh, your career, uh, uh, managing campaigns and and all that goes into an election and uh, just just all the back work and and, and just what it's like on an election night.
2: Well, you know, I've been doing this for about, you know, 25 years. I grew up. In a small little town, Lexington, Virginia, I grew up on a farm with cattle. We had pigs. We had horses. Um, my dad was big in the Farm Bureau, and as a kid, I got to go watch Farm Bureau meetings. Became fascinated with with watching coalitions being built. The chicken guys would gang up on the the cow guys, who would then turn around and gang up on the horse guys, who would turn gang up on the pig guys. Um, and I became fascinated as a kid with coalition building and politics. Went to college, got my undergrad in political science, worked on a lot of campaigns, then went to Texas, moved to Texas, then went to UT, got my master's in political science. Um, went to work for President Bush 2000, 2004, worked for Senator Hutchinson, worked for Senator Cornyn. Um, and then Pete Sessions brought me into the NRCC. In 2010. And so I literally have been doing house races since then. So it's been got about 68 house races in about 12 years. Um, And so it's one of those deals where you like having a niche, but you'd like to do like a statewide every once in a while just to try something different. (laughs) But everybody ends up calling me, you know, you're one of the house guys. And I'm like, you know, I'd really like to be one of the statewide guys, you know, but I do love house races. They're more organic, they're more, you touch the voters, you kind of know the defined universe that you're working in. Um, you know, As far as this cycle, and, and I think all cycles going forward, um, we live in a 50-50 America. Um, I think the biggest mistake that a lot of people made this cycle, and I was telling Ethan this earlier, we don't live in We don't live in these these wave environments anymore because the politics just doesn't allow it. Um, and the reason why I say that is, you know, in 2010, when Republicans picked up 63 seats, you know, the enthusiasm for that movement was basically Obamacare. It was taking over an entire healthcare system and then reallocating how that healthcare system reallocated resources. You know, that's what got you a 60-seat margin. You know, 2014, we we picked up 14 seats basically just because we were the party out of power. And by the time this cycle is done, that number is going to be between 10 to 12. Um, The Democrats picked up 40 seats in 2018, and that was more of a reaction to, I still can't believe Hillary lost in 2016. So what you had there was every Democrat, high propensity, mid propensity or low propensity Democrat who did not vote for Hillary in 2016 because everybody thought she was a shoo-in, that was the very first chance they had to exact their revenge Mm. on Republicans. So they kicked out 40 of our members. Um, But And then when Biden got elected, Democrats won the House, Democrats won the Senate, Everyone started looking at the historical map going, voila, Republicans are going to pick up 33 seats. Well, there's a couple of things in play now that wasn't around back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, 80s, and 90s, when that natural historical pattern just developed. One is the Internet. Two is campaigns have come, become very sophisticated. So we know from cycle to cycle who voted, who didn't. The third thing is money. There is so much more money in politics now. And money, it flows about 50-50. At the end of the day, there's always someone with a little advantage. But at the end of the day, both sides will raise about the same amount of money. And because of that, it's created this 50-50 country that we live in. Um, The country is divided. It's divided on the presidential level. We have a 50-50 Senate right now, which will change. Um, And the Republican majority in the House is going to be three, four, five seats. We're going to have a 50-50 House where you're going to have four or five members or six members or seven members on any given day form a block and just control whatever goes on in the House of Representatives. Um, And so I think Speaker McCarthy, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be him, his uh, political skill is going to be tested on a daily basis. Because depending on the issue of the day, there's going to be different coalition groups that will get together to either support something or block something. Um, And I think what you're going to see, too, is you're going to see a lot of guys trying to cut deals with Democrats. They're, they're, because if we have 20 or 30 guys bailing on an issue, you might see the Speaker, uh, when I was at the committee, Boehner had to do this all the time. He had to go cut deals with Democrats to get the debt ceiling raised, or to get the budget passed, or maybe even to get the Farm Bill passed. Um, so I think you'll, and I think you'll see that too. Um, elections are... Um, because of the money, because of the, 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 the more sophistication, polling this cycle was very good. Anyone, who's, anyone who takes a swing at polling this cycle will be way off. If you look at the internal polls, and I tell people all the time, they're like, how do you know polling was good? I was like, in my two Democratic races, every time I polled, they tell me we are going to lose, and we lost. Polling was good. In Don Bacon's race, every poll I took said we were going to win by three or four points, and we won by four and a half points. Our polling was good. So, you know, polling was good. You know, another good example, if you look at, I looked at the generic ballot the night before the election. It was R plus two. R plus two tells me, okay, we're going to pick up 10 to 15 seats. Well, it looks like we're going to come in that 12 range somewhere. So polling was actually correct this cycle. And we pretty much got it spot on.
0: So, gentlemen, uh, as David mentioned, we we may see uh, that a coalition uh, come together to try and get something passed or blocked in the House there. Um, Ethan, do you think that is more of an opportunity for issues that impact cattle producers, or or can this complicate things more? Um, Is this more of a time for compromise to get things pushed forward, or are we going to see these different groups uh, digging their heels? I I guess, what, what concerns you from the advocacy side for the cattle industry?
1: Sure. I, I think I, I kind of want to separate those because I think there's one conversation on the farm bill, right? And and just the, the, the volume of that expenditure, what was an $800 billion farm bill last time, just to keep up with inflation is now a trillion dollar farm bill. And that's, you know, that essentially is holding the line on spending on all of these different programs, all of which are the most important thing to somebody somewhere, right? And you know, when you add into that the fact that we had all that in- Inflation Reduction Act spending uh, over the summer, uh, tens of billions of dollars of what would otherwise be farm bill spending uh, preempted in that bill. Um, Debbie Stabenow came out, you know, after that, and the chairwoman of the Senate Ag Committee and said, well, this is going to really help us get a farm bill done. I don't know that that's true necessarily when you look at who is going to be looking at that bill on the House side, you know, some of these new members coming in, a lot of the conversations we had with them, you um, resulted in them saying, look, you know, we're just not going to vote for a farm bill, regardless of what it is, because we don't think that's responsible government spending. That's the that's the hill that I think they're going to have to climb in that specific instance um, with this more conservative tone in the House. It's going to be very fiscally conservative. I don't know if David would agree with this. Um, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of similarities in that fiscal conservative tone to 2010. I think there's going to be a lot of the same talking points, right? Especially with a Democrat in the White House, it's going to be an easy target to say, "Well, this is reckless government spending, and we need to shut it down." No is going to be really easy for for people to to fall back on in the House of Representatives, um, particularly when uh, we've seen that the primary season is the real fear point. I mean, where we lost seats we should have won, uh, you know, and 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 certainly there were other factors. Whether that's Jamie Herrera Butler in Washington, Peter Meyer in Michigan that voted for impeachment and lost their primaries, they likely would have won those general election races, right? Um, Those would have been two more pickups or at least holds for Republicans in those seats. But the the guys that came in and and were successful aren't looking at the general, they're looking at the primary. And they're saying, you know, no on the farm bill lets me go home and say I'm a fiscal conservative, I'm holding the line on that. That's that's one conversation. And then you look at everything else we're dealing with in the cattle industry, whether that be the never ending, you know, market and price discovery uh, conversation, uh, bills like special investigator um, that undoubtedly will be reintroduced in the next Congress. Um, you, you know, that I think is a little bit different I, I, uh, proposition. I think you're going to see a bit more of a traditional limited government perspective coming out of the House of Representatives nothing changed enough in the Senate for that to change right the the odd dynamics of you know kind of Chuck Grassley and Deb Fisher aligning themselves with John tester you know I mean that that that's not going to change a whole lot um, and, and but but in the house I think what was already a little bit more hesitation to go down some of those roads is going to be more so uh, in in this new Congress um, so it's going to be a bit of a split personality as far as you know it's not like gosh republicans are in control of the house so we can go in now and get whatever we want um it's going to be a far more nuanced conversation than that um but i, I do think that that it's going to be a, a little bit of a better environment for us as far as you know that general philosophy of hey less the the less the government is knocking on cattle producers doors the better off we probably are um that's going to be that's going to resonate more in the house um, than, than probably it has in the last few years
2: I was working for the NRCC in the the, um, 12 to 14 cycle, and I remember the struggle to get the 2013 Farm Bill passed, Um, and I, I remember the most frustrating thing was you didn't have a problem with Republicans on the Agriculture Committee. You had a problem with Republicans who weren't on the Agriculture Committee who or who or who didn't have a vested interest in the farm bill, who, who who it was so easy for them to vote no on it because it had no direct effect on what what went on back in their district, right? And I remember we jumped through a bunch of hoops. You know, at one time they bifurcated it because the whole issue was over SNAP payments. Yep. And so they took the SNAP payments out and said, okay, let's vote on a. We'll get the SNAP payments. B. Well, they didn't like A or B. They just never, you know. And if memory serves me correctly, we need we had a bunch of Democrats help us pass the farm bill. And I think we're going to have this same situation this 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 time. And I think Ethan's right. It's going to be if you're a Republican, it's when the farm bill hits the floor. It's going. It's not going to be taking care of farmers first. It's going to be how do I guarantee I don't get a primary and take, then take care of farmers. You know How do you do that political jujitsu, as I like to call it, where, A, you wanna take care of farmers because everyone loves farmers. There's not a member of Congress that doesn't walk in that building who says, we don't love farmers, ranchers, cattlemen, we love them all. And then you say to them, but they need this. And they're like, okay, how do I do this? How do I tell them no, but at the same time, hug them and tell them how much I love them and then say oh yeah and don't forget to drop off your pack check you know and, and when you come to the event right i mean right. that's kind of the the maze or the pyramid that these guys are going to have to to go through um don and i have not talked about the farm yet because we were so when you live in a 50 50 district you never take anything for granted so you know we just got reelected on tuesday i'm sure when he comes back next week You know, him and his staff will begin talking about the upcoming farm bill, you know, coming from Nebraska. Um, We we used to hear a lot from the farm guys because Ben Sass got off of ag. And when Ben Sass got off of ag until Deb Fisher got back on. And I think Deb's back on ag. She is. Yeah. We became farm central. And so I learned a lot more about that. I thought I knew a lot about that until Don became the farm guy. Then I realized I didn't know anything about ag. (laughs) (laughs) And cattlemen and and corn producers and wheat producers and meat packers and and, and all that stuff. So I think, and it's gonna be hard for your DC guys to keep up with all the moving parts. So I would ask your membership to be patient because every day, because we're gonna have such a small majority, every day is technically gonna be a new Congress and you're just not going to know what the issue is of the day and who's with what and who's sticking with who to the end. Well,
1: and it's 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 always interesting to me because, you know, when you look at that split, right, the idea, well, maybe we need to divide the two and and, and tackle the nutrition part separately right. from the ag spending. You know, that's where you really go off the rails. And you can look at that election map from earlier this week, you know, and look at the pockets of blue and the vast expanses of red. And there's, there's that story being told, right? Because those, those nutrition programs are really only important to those members coming from those densely populated blue areas. And, and that's the cities. That's, I mean, you know, once you get into the suburbs where those Republicans are, are more in control, you, you, you just don't have that pressure on the nutrition part. There's literally no value for them in voting for $800 million in nutrition spending. Um, you, you almost have to have everybody together to get something done. And, and, you know, we take a different position in the cattle industry on the farm bill slightly because we don't have the same big support programs, right? We're not sugar. We're not cotton. Wow. And there's nothing wrong with, with the, 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 their engagement in the farm bill, but it's different than ours. So there's a lot more at risk for some of those commodities um, going into that, that, that process, knowing that um, there's, a, there's a big sales job ahead of us on, on, on some of these conservative members coming in. It's a huge sales job, and it's going to have to be done over and over and over and over and over and over
2: and over, and over because these guys are going to tell them, Ethan, we're with you. They're going to go back home for the weekend, or they're going to get three or four phone calls from supporters saying, government's too big. Let's shrink government. You know, let's start with this. And then Ethan's going to think a guys with them. Guys are going to go on the floor and vote no. He's not going to give Ethan a heads up because that's not what members do. Um, and Ethan's going to be, like, losing his mind you know, watching this whole thing play out. Now I'm not smart. Who is, 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 who's going to be the egg chair? Is it Rogers? No, it's GT. That's right. GT Thompson. Yeah. And, and GT is going to have one of the toughest jobs in Congress. He
1: yeah. is. Yeah. And, and, and he knows that, you know, and you talk to yeah. him about it. He, he knows that this is going to be a real, uh, a real climb. And, and he's, uh, he's certainly not afraid of that. I mean, he's going to hit the ground running in January with hearings and, and make that case, um, and I think there's nobody better to do it. I mean, he's a, he's a deal maker. He understands what's at stake. Um, and, and I think he's the man for the job and, and boy, nobody has covered as much ground in the country as he has in the yeah. last few years. I don't know. I can't think of, he's been to Montana, hasn't he, Wayne? Yes, he has. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, he's been everywhere in the last, uh, in the last couple of years. So he's, he's doing the work there, but, but it is going to be, it's going to be a challenge for him.
0: So, Ethan and David, you know, back in the day, you would watch an election, you'd maybe go to bed, and then you'd wake up and listen to the radio, to TV, or or read the paper and have those results the next day for the most part. Uh, And a lot of people are asking, why are Nevada and Arizona so slow at counting? And and why does it take so long to get these results? Uh, I know that question is asked by so many people. Uh, David, what are your thoughts?
2: What people need to understand is... Elections are not federalized. Each state conducts their own election and each state has their own rules. And the rules dictate a lot of how quickly elections are determined. I'll give you a great example. Florida, seven to 10 million people vote, 5 million vote by mail, you know, in three hours in Florida. Why? Because Florida law allows you to start counting absentee ballots before the polls close. Arizona, pretty much half the size of Florida, half the number of voters, takes two weeks to count. Why? Because Arizona law doesn't allow you to start the count until after the polls close. And every state has different rules. And that's why... You can count 5 million mail-in votes in Florida in three and a half hours, and it takes two and a half weeks to count two and a half million mail-in votes in Arizona. And I'm not fully detailed on every state. You know, like, for example, in Illinois, they have two weeks to count mail-in ballots as long as that mail-in ballot is postmarked on election day, because that's Illinois law. Every state's different. And it used to be we never had a lot of close elections. In the old days, you either won by a loss or you lost by a loss. A lot. I mean, you won by a lot, you lost by a lot. But once again, with campaigns and now being so sophisticated, we literally, as consultants, can almost create a 50-50 scenario in every situation. And you're seeing that today with, you know, we're what, 48 hours passed. Polls closing in most states, and there's still 25 races that hadn't been called because they're both, they're 50-50 races. And that's, once again, because we've become, with data and technology, we've just become so sophisticated on how we target voters and how we run campaigns that we almost can create 50-50 environments in every race. And then the race just comes down to who really decides to show up on election day and who doesn't, or who really decides to send in their mail ballot and who doesn't. But literally in, in when I say 50, 50, you know, there are some districts out there that are R plus 20, R plus 30, D plus 30. They don't have competitive races. When I say 50, 50 races, mm. I'm talking about the races that fall in that R plus five to D plus five window where they're just competitive, competitive races, um, and so, you know, it 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 um it makes good job security for guys like me, but it frustrates lawmakers and it frustrates the public because they're like, for God's sake, you know, we have an election on Tuesday. Can we just find out who the winners are and get back to our daily lives? So <laughs> not have to wait
1: two weeks to find out. So so David, I've got a question on that, and and <clears throat> you know, I remember. This has been a decade ago now. I worked for you on a race in Northern Michigan in 2012, and that was a tight race. And and we we invested a lot in ground game. We, mm-hmm. we I mean I think we knocked on 10,000 doors in the last couple weeks of that campaign and mm-hmm. squeaked out that race by 2,600 votes. Um, when pretty much everybody else, that was that Romney cycle. It was not a pretty cycle for yep. Republicans. Abigail Spanberger ran a similar model in Virginia this last couple of weeks. I mean, they, they really hit the ground hard. That was a serious ground game against a, a candidate who, who in Yesley Vega, who, I mean, we met with her, she came into the office, didn't really, I mean, that ground game wasn't their deal, right? They were pouring money into TV. They were pouring money into to social. You know, right. I found myself in Denver on election day at our headquarters and I was watching TV election morning. And all I saw was Dem ad after Dem ad after Dem ad after Dem ad. After Dem ad. And you can see those results you know, Barb Kirkmeyer should have won by by a touchdown and she's still, you know, a, a half a percent back. Lauren Boebert is just pulled ahead in the last few hours by 500 votes. Um, you know, does ground game still matter? Is that I mean, are we in a post? No, game I, he, he, here is where
2: all my friends call me an old head and, and I'll happily accept the title of old head. When I went to work for President Bush, I worked on the ground side. I was not a media guy. I was not a digital guy. It's not a tech guy. I was a ground guy and I was trained that the more face-to-face contacts you have, um, the easier it is to get someone to vote for your candidate. Don Bacon allows me to do something that a lot of congressional members don't do. He allows me to keep our campaign office open year round. And because of that, I literally start knocking doors the May before the next election. So I literally start a year before the primary. I don't have the final numbers for the for this cycle, but we would have knocked we would have knocked on a hundred and seventy thousand doors in Nebraska to from May of twenty twenty one until November of twenty twenty two. We knocked on 30,000 doors the last 10 days of the campaign. And what starting early allows me to do, it allows me, A, to build a culture, but it allows me, too, to train a team. And what I do is we start small and we, we add staff, we add staff, we add staff, we add staff. And then that way, by the time we get to May of the on year, we're rocking and rolling. And we've got 20 people going They've been going for a year. They're fully trained up. And when I need to add the next 20, those 20 train those 20. So uh, the Saturday before election day in Nebraska too, we had 142 people knocking doors. Wow. And we literally knocked on 10,000 doors in one day. I know congressional campaigns that did not knock 10,000 doors, the whole campaign. We did it in one day. Um, Because to me, that's how you survive in a 50-50 district. You have to go that extra mile, and you have to talk to the voters. I like digital. I like mail. I like TV. But eventually, to me, you get to a point of saturation. You know, if I run 12 TV ads about Don, usually about the eighth TV ad, the people are like, enough, enough, enough. Now, I don't stop doing it because of everything <laughs> But yeah. They're pretty much like, okay, we've seen eight ads about Don, we get it. And the way I supplement that is I just keep sending people to their door. You know, we just keep, and then, and then what we do is we have a survey and we're like, hey, last time we were here, you were for this, this, and this. Has that changed? Because people change their mind all the time. And they, they're they like, yeah, we don't like Don's position on this. And then we, and then we educate it and, and we educate and we educate and since I've been working for Don since 2016, we've in the, you know, the, the four races, we've probably knocked on a half a million doors in the old Nebraska two and the new Nebraska two Cause that's the only way I know how to do it. Cause I'm an old head. Um, I, it, and it, it, it makes a difference. You know, in some campaigns they're just not organized. They don't knock on any doors and they lose. And I wish it was as simple as you knock on a half a million doors, you win, you don't, you lose. But to me, it's impossible to win a 50-50 without having a, a ground game. Yep. It's, it's just in, it's impossible to do. And I do realize that resources come into it. And as a GC, my biggest task as a GC, and, and I tell my clients all the time, they're like, well, what do you do as a GC? And I said, every day my job is to make the best bad decision for the campaign. That's literally what my job is every day. And I have to referee a lot of disputes between the TV guys and the digital guys when I tell them, oh yeah, by the way, I'm taking $50,000 for a door program. Right. And they lose their mind and then I explain to them, we're not going to be successful without doing this. Um, and it, it's a culture and it takes a while. And I would suggest that any freshman member who barely gets here, in other words, wins by less than 5,000 votes, it's in their best interest to develop a field program and start to create that culture and start knocking on doors now. Because if you got here by less than 5,000 votes, let me let you get in on a secret, you're going to be targeted next cycle because you barely got there. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to be any big secret out there about
1: who's on the target list. It's going to be the guys who barely got here this time. And if you think that the club for growth is going to stay out because you're in jeopardy as a Republican member, you're wrong, right? You're going to see a primary challenge. You're going to see a general challenge and it's going to be relentless. And I tell all my clients, you know, club for growth, NRC, CLF, those are great. That's the
2: gravy in a campaign. The fundamental responsibility to take care of our business is our responsibility. Yep. If CLF comes in or if the club comes in or from a democratic campaign mm-hmm. and HMP or D trip comes in Yes, I'm dancing the happy dance, because that then allows my campaign to go off and do other things because the big boys have come in. But if you're writing a campaign plan, and you basically write that campaign plan to include all these guys coming in, you're giving your member a flawed campaign plan, because yep. there there are no guarantees in life, especially when it comes to outside groups deciding where they go to spend money on both sides and where they don't. Um, So long story short, big believer in door to door, big believer. And there are some rural districts where you can't do it. And then you have to get real creative. But any place you can send a volunteer to knock on the door and hand that piece of lit to a potential voter and tell them to their face why your guy is better than their guy increases the chance of them voting for your
1: guy by about 15, 20%. Well, that was always a problem in Michigan one, is it takes 10 hours to drive across it, 30 counties you know, you do the same thing in Toledo, Ohio, you might get shot, but you can cover that district in an afternoon. Yeah, you know, but I mean, mean, I mean, you don't send your, you don't send your
2: canvassers <laughs> into uh, some pretty shady areas. You know, that's where the mail comes in, and you just carpet bomb them with mail, right. because you don't want to send your, your walkers into some interesting neighborhoods. I'll just put it that way. No.
0: So, so Ethan, as we look at All of this, uh, who who are going to be those very influential leaders in in both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party uh, that are are going to be pro-agriculture. And maybe we could even say who are going to be those influential uh, 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 members, especially in the Senate. Uh, Joe Manchin kind of comes to mind as well, uh, as he's kind of uh, been been that Democrat right now that has uh, kind of put the brakes on a lot of uh, bills uh, put forward uh, over the past uh, two years. But on that ag standpoint, <coughs> w- what are we seeing there, Ethan?
1: You know, I, I mean, obviously the the thought leader on this in the in the House ought to be GT, and I think that it I think that it will be. I think that um, you know, in in Republican leadership and larger sort of broad party leadership in the House, uh, you don't have anybody that's that's really sort of hyper focused on agriculture. Uh, I mean, Kevin McCarthy's always supportive of agriculture. Steve Scalise is always really supportive of agriculture. Um, Tom Emmer, obviously, is always very supportive of agriculture. He's a he's a friend of our current president, Don Schieffelbein. I mean, last time I saw Emmer, uh, he, he took a selfie and sent it to sent it to, to, to Donnie. You know, because I mean, that, that's just he's he's wired into that community because Minnesota demands it. Um, so, you know, those those champions are there and they understand the importance of, of agriculture and the cattle industry. Um, to the economy, but also as a voting block. quite frankly. Um, and the fact that we're so, we're so spread out around the country, you know, that influence is everywhere. We're at town halls, we're, we're in the conversation, our members are showing up in, in roundtables throughout the country. Um, and, and so that, to my mind, and, and, you know, looking at our government affairs strategy puts everybody in play, right? They may not show up for every issue on agriculture, but it's looking for those opportunities where, hey, we're on your radar or we should be this week on this issue and we have a lot of success running that strategy you know we're not going to come back to you on seven other issues but today you know even though you're not on ag and you don't think about this a lot this is important to to your your producers in your state and it's an easy one for you to do whatever the ask might be on the senate side you know i i think that we've seen over the last couple years um a lot of members that um are in that ag conversation at a certain point. They may not be in the daily conversation about agriculture in the House. That's always going to be the the John Thunes of the world, right? And the and the and the the Senator Hovens of the world. Certainly, John Tester. Um, you know, even if we don't see issues eye to eye with him, always um, we've certainly found common ground with Senator Tester in the last couple of years. Um, you know, Chuck Grassley, even though he disagrees with with the cattle industry on basically every issue under the sun. Um, you know, influential in agriculture, um, Deb Fisher, Those 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 key players. John Bozeman is a fantastic leader uh, of the of the Republicans on the on the Ag Committee. It would be fantastic to see him as chairman of the Ag Committee. Um, but as a ranking member, um, he's thoughtful. He's reasonable. He listens. Um, he his his head's in a good place. Um, he's looking for common ground. We're really blessed with a lot of folks who really care about agriculture. Senator Durbin. I mean, you never think about Senator Durbin. Um, from Illinois as, a, as, a, as an agriculture, um, you know, focused policymaker, but he's on the Ag Committee, and, and um, I'll tell you, I mean, I don't mind telling this story. We called his office on an issue, and the first thing they did was, was basically yell at us for not calling them enough on agriculture. You know, why don't we hear from you more on agriculture in this office? Um, and, and it's a good lesson, right, that there, there are advocates for this industry all over the place looking for information, looking for engagement on those issues, um, and, and so, you know, specifically in the Senate, where it's such a small group, um, everyone is a potential champion if we're doing our jobs right.
2: You know, in Illinois, I do a lot of work in Illinois, and, and Ethan's absolutely right. Once you, you, know, once you leave Chicago and the suburbs, Illinois is just one giant corn, corn and soybean field. Uh, you just see corn and soybean as far as the eye can see. So I, I can see Senator Durbin's office being like, Hey, we like act too. Yeah. Cause you know, once you get out the city and start heading West and South, it's, it's soybean fields and corn fields for as far as the eye can see.
1: Well, and that's where, you know, that's where NCBA's model works really well because our Illinois guys are, are talking to Durbin all the time. Right. And, and right. they're having those in-state conversations. It's our job to stitch that together nationally um, you know, and, and, and kind of make that into a, 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 a comprehensive national strategy. Um, and, and so, you know, we're always having those conversations with our state affiliates and, and joining forces on those engagements, uh, with members. And, and certainly we're going to have a lot of that ahead of us. We're going to have some new members, Mark Wayne Mullen from Oklahoma, you know, I, I, coming in is, is, I mean, he's a cattle producer. Um, he has an interest in these issues. We're going to, we're going to have, uh, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, time to, to get him up to speed on, on what NCBA is looking for, what Oklahoma Cattlemen is looking for, um, so there are going to be a lot of those opportunities coming up in the next Congress.
0: Ethan, what are some of the challenges uh, that uh, are, are going to be uh, coming up in the next two years, farm bill aside?
1: You know, I think that trade is is really one that is is on the minds of a lot of of the ag world in Washington right now. Um, the Biden administration simply has not engaged. On trade, and when you look at um, the, the, the the struggles of COVID in the cattle industry in particular, the one bright spot that we can look back on there has, has been that growth in our trade footprint ten and a half billion dollars in exports in the last uh, in the last year um, sneaking up on probably we're going to be at twelve and a half billion in, in, in closing out twenty twenty two explosive growth in new markets like China. Uh, Sustained growth in places like Japan and South Korea, new opportunities in places like the UK, um, you know, emerging conversations, even in the European Union. And it's not just about trade, right? It's about those conversations about our sustainability. It's those conversations about how we produce what we produce. US cattle industry produces the highest quality beef in the world. We do it with the lowest environmental footprint, and we almost never get credit for that on the national or on the international stage. Um, So, you know, trade and trade conversations are, are one of the most important vehicles to deliver that message to foreign audiences and, and make that argument for why we're different and, and why what we produce is so unique um, and, and quite frankly, why we're not the same as Brazil or, or any of these other countries that, that produce beef. Um, that's going to be a real challenge, not just to get the Biden administration to truly engage in this and, and, and you know, not just kind of bite around the edges like they're doing now. But also back to those those new members up on Capitol Hill. Help them understand why it's so important to pass trade deals. Right. And and if the if the if the the general consensus is it's too hard to get consensus on trade promotion authority or too hard to get consensus on approving a trade deal and you know giving a win, you know, I'm making air quotes when I say that to, to the, the current president or whatever else, you lose the opportunity to to do one of the most impactful things Congress can do to, to actually empower. An industry to make more money, right? It shouldn't just be about, well, who do we make the checkout to to support your industry? No, help us open markets and then get out of the way and let us go let us go pursue those markets. Um, so that's probably more of a rant than you wanted on that. But I mean, honestly, that's one of the hurdles outside of the Farm Bill in the next Congress that I think um, I, we're really going to be focused on and is going to be a real lift.
0: Now, we, we touched on it just just briefly, though, but, of course, NCBA's grassroots policy starts at the state level. Um, that comes from the county level and works, it way up, works its way up into the policy book and is voted upon by delegates at, at the national meeting. Um, so when your team, your government affairs team, hits the hill... Ethan, how important is it to, to have these relationships and to have an open line of communication with both Republicans and Democrats and independents on Capitol Hill to be able to try and shape legislation that follows the policy book that your members create?
1: It, it it's the It's the entire basis for what we're doing here, right? I mean, if you take that policy book away, we might as well close up shop and, you know, I'll go back to work and beg David for a campaign job somewhere. Uh, working for Don Bacon or somebody. Because, I mean, the the entirety of what we do here in Washington is execution of the items detailed in that policy book. If you boil down my job to one, to one simple bullet, that's it. Um, and so a lot of times what that looks like is building relationships, conducting outreach, and educating both members up on Capitol Hill, their staffs, but also uh, the administration, and the agencies on the priorities of this of this industry so that when an issue does come up, we're not starting from scratch in, in having that conversation, right? It's not, hey, you know, I'm Ethan Lane from, from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, and I'd like to have a conversation with you about this emerging issue. It's, you know, hey, checking in, we just talked two weeks ago, and you're already up to speed on this, and here's where we're at now. This has now become an issue we need to deal with. And there's a big difference between between those two as far as what you can what you can get from that process. Um, That takes people, that takes people knowledgeable, not just of how the process works here in Washington, but, but the, the cattle industry, you know, they have to be, they have to be fluent both directions. And, and NCBA is different than a lot of trade associations. We don't have outside consultants. We don't have, you know, we don't have outside firms working these different issues. We have 18 people in my office here in Washington um, that are subject matter experts and they're doing regulatory, they're doing the Hill Um, And everything in between. And they're out in the country talking directly to producers. Um, So we're a unique model. It's a labor intensive one. But I think the results uh, of that speak for themselves as far as the issues we cover and and that engagement on the Hill.
0: Now, David, how important is it for the elected officials or the candidates that you work with when... In Washington, D.C., I know a lot of different constituents or groups come into their offices every single day when the session is going. But how important is it, though, for for cattlemen and women in particular to take the time to participate in a fly in and and come out and have that face to face engagement, whether and actually do that in D.C. and and not have that uh, elected official have to come to them or come to the cattlemen's meeting every single year. How important is it to have that face to face?
2: It's 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 invaluable and, and basically the more citizens can interact with their congressman or congresswoman, they remember faces, they were they remember names and they're more likely to return your call. Um, the more contact you have with them, you know, when you come in for your fly in, you know, you meet with your congressman, you guys take a group picture um, with him and then everybody kind of goes their separate ways. I worked with, for the realtors for three years and all my political stuff. And I remember the realtors had a very good program to make sure that that they always had people directly engaged with the members. Because not only do you have people who are coming in doing the fly-in, but you also have cattlemen, ranchers, farmers who randomly are just coming to DC for other things, especially if they have other interests, they're a part of other groups. And it's a lot easier for them to get a meeting with their congressman if you, you've already met your congressman about cattleman issue, but now you're in town because you're also a wheat grower or a feeder or whatever. And you call the office and they're like, oh, yeah, we remember him. He's a cattleman. He met with Don about this. Let's make sure this meeting happens. Um, people sometimes get lost up in the title, but at the end of the day, they work for you. They are your representative in Washington, D.C. Look past the title, look past the pin that they wear, and just tell yourself every day, they work for me. And if they develop an attitude where they stop working for you, they're not going to be in Congress very long, because people will eventually figure that out, and they're going to go try to find someone who will work for them and send that person to Washington, but people always, do, they come here and they get intimidated and they're like, oh, my God, he's a congressman. Or I can't talk to him because he's a congressman. His time is so valuable. He won't have time to meet with me.
1: Yes, he will. They, Yes, he will. And you I'm just always, can't be intimidated by that. I'm always amazed when we have uh, folks that haven't engaged in that process and then they come to Washington and they start to develop that relationship with their member of Congress and to see their impression of that member change. And they either they either, you know, start with this idea that, oh, man, my member of Congress, because everyone hates Congress, but everyone loves their member of Congress. Right. I mean, and and there's always that distinction. And then they start having conversations with them. And I'm thinking of one that I'm not going to name where we have a, a, you know, a volunteer leader that, that really felt like their member was a solid performer for the cattle industry. And we were like, well, not not really. You know, they're not a great member. Um, a lot of smoke and mirrors, not much deliverable. And as they've been more involved, you know, now they're like, man, that guy is, it needs to go. I mean, that is, he is not who we thought he was. And, and so, I mean, it, it's, it's so critically important, both directions, right. To, to get in, get in those offices and have those conversations. Um, the members know you're there and they know you're interested and man, that makes a difference, but, um, it's helpful out in the country too, to have a real up close First person understanding of what those members are doing in Washington.
2: Yeah, I mean the the funny stat that I always chuckle, you know, every Sunday on the Sunday shows, they get a they get a kick out of putting a stat up that says fifteen or sixteen or seventeen percent of people approve of Congress. And you kinda chuckle a little bit. But what they don't tell you is then when you go into the individual districts, ninety-five percent of the people approve of their individual congress And, you know look, we have a, you know, a 90 to 95% re-election rate for members of Congress. And it's been that way forever. Although everyone's hated Congress and they have for the last 30 years. They hate the guy behind the tree. They don't hate their own congressman. They hate the congressman that's behind the tree. And um, that's that's always the, the funny part of this is that, yeah oh yeah congress sucks but i love my guy my (laughs) guy is the greatest guy in the world but the rest of these guys they're just bums but my guy is great um so you know for guys like me just you know you fall back on that because remember what we call they hate us and i'm like yes they hate you as a collective group but they love you back in the district and that's all that matters
0: be, before we uh, uh, share some final thoughts on this, uh, Ethan, uh, uh, when we recorded this show, yeah, right the day before Veterans Day, two thousand and twenty-two, uh, recently, um, NCBA played host there, the, the DC office, to uh, the uh, a fly-in of uh, veterans, and what what was that like having military veterans? come to the NCBA office, host them up on up on the rooftop there so they could see all the monuments of Washington, D.C. But uh, what was that like just deploying host to uh, uh, parts of the the greatest generation that uh, has helped defend the right to have these elections and to our democracy?
1: You know, it's the third time we've hosted uh, uh, one of those groups in our office in Washington, And, you know, the first time was really fun because they've all been fun. But the first time was really fun because we have a lot of young staff in the D.C. office. And, you know, honor flights are something if you work in D.C. long enough and around Congress long enough, you know what a cool thing they are. Um, But to host those guys and, you know, we're blessed uh, and, and our members have blessed us with an office in a really prime location in downtown Washington, D.C. with fantastic views and a grill. You know, we can cook a lot of meat up there. We can, we can make it feel like you're not in downtown Washington, D.C., and give them that experience. And we got through kind of cooking all this stuff and feeding these guys and having these conversations, and they're telling us stories, and they're looking at the view, and, and they're just marveling at this. We're marveling at them. And I had two or three of the, our younger staff come over, and one of them had you know a little tear in their eyes, and they said, this is the coolest thing I've ever been a part of in my career. Can we please do this again? And, and, you know, I mean, that's, that's staff after hours staying around um, because it was just such an irreplaceable experience to talk to these guys and hear their stories and, and see them smile and be excited to be in Washington and, and doing that. Um, and it, it, you know, it costs us nothing. I mean, it's just such an, such an, such an easy way to, to, to help facilitate that experience mm-hmm. for them. Um, it's amazing what they go through. As part of that trip, you know, these guys are not all ambulatory They're in some of them are in wheelchairs. They're, they're older. It's hard to get around. Um, they're putting them on buses to get them to somewhere where they can afford to stay because it's not cheap to stay in Washington, D.C. Um, as anyone who's come to visit us knows, um, you know, it's it is it's a tough trip for a lot of these guys. And it speaks to how important it is to them to come to Washington and be a part of this. Um, what a cool thing for us to be able to, 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 to help share in and, and be a part of, um, we just, we just are so pleased they've allowed us to be involved with it.
0: Well, thanks for sharing those thoughts. And, and for our, uh, listeners, um, that would be interested in learning more about that, uh, cattleman Cattlemen to Cattlemen, NCBA's TV show has done a great, uh, segment, on the honor flight, it's available uh, on ncba.org and the Cattleman to Cattleman YouTube page. Go check it out. Uh, it'll it'll bring a tear to your tear to your eye. And I know we like to call D.C. the swamp, but if you've never visited our nation's capital to see the history, the the museums, and uh, and when you get to see especially the, those honor flight participants touring their respective monuments of the wars that they fought and or their time in the military service, it it, it really puts all the everything into perspective of uh, all the challenges we have in this world. But uh, there's people that have put their lives on the line and and those that did uh, give their lives for our freedoms. And so we can call D.C. the swamp, but I I encourage everyone to go out there and truly see the treasure of of what it truly is uh, to, to our nation. As, as we said, it's going to take a few more weeks to get some of these states and uh, all the ballots uh, fully counted. I know our friend J.J. Gokuchia is currently he has a pack line full of mail bags. Uh, his, his pack string is uh, going from the ranch all, all the way to be counted in Las Vegas so uh, hopefully he can get there with that uh, that uh, line of horses in the mail bags delivered here soon Ethan. <laughs> but uh, yeah, are- he just
1: texted me since we've been on this podcast with an update on the race in Nevada so I'm getting real time <laughs> updates from the ground. So- which one um masto cortez masto i think she's probably going to win it, it, it you know the the, the this is going to be outdated by the time this airs but you know it's it's interesting to watch that county by county uh, count yeah. and what's left in in those voting uh, in those voting boxes the ballot boxes it, it sure looks like from from the math side that she's got a shot but we'll see what happens in the next week or so the one thing we say on
2: our side is the trend is your friend You know, once, especially with mail-in ballots, like once a trend develops, that trend is usually not broken unless something really, really weird happens. Yeah. And so what we always look at for late absentee and, and early voting is the trend, because usually the trend, if it's working in your direction, it's your friend. And if it's working away from you, it's not your friend, but it continues to work away from you. So I always tell people, they're like, what do we look for? I'm like, look for the trend. The trend either way will be your friend. You're going to love it or hate it, but it's going to be your friend.
0: Well, gentlemen, as uh, and just to be transparent to our listeners, we recorded this conversation on November 10th, 2022. Just a little bit of reference for the uncertainty that we have in terms of how that U.S. Senate is going to be controlled. And uh, again, we'll, we could be having a very different conversation in two to three weeks on, on how this is going to impact the, the congressional uh Uh, House, uh, the House and the Senate races, and just how that impacts uh, uh, the agriculture sector as well. But uh, so with that said, gentlemen, what what are some last thoughts you would just like to share with the cattlemen and women tuning in to our conversation here today?
2: I will start, and I'll just say on the political side, just engage, 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 engage. As I said, talk to your members, talk to their LAs, talk to their district staffs. Let them know what your concerns are. Let them know what you're happy about, what you're not happy about. Um, don't worry about, oh, I've called them four times. They're your representatives. They're there to represent you. Um, you have special needs. You have special issues. Um, engage your members of Congress because that's what they're there for. You know, Don't worry about the title. Don't worry about the pen. Just constantly stay engaged with your members
1: of Congress. Yeah, and, and, you know, from my side, I, I, I would encourage our, our, our listeners, our members around the country, I, I, I remind them that, you know, when we get into these kinds of cycles where things are tight, um, I do this for a living, and I have access to really good information. And it's still hard to separate fact from fiction. Um, you know, if you're seeing it posted on Facebook in a, in a random chain, it's probably not true. And and I think that that's really good information for people to remember, Um, you know, consider the source, consider uh, consider the validity of things that you're hearing um, and and really look for ways to cut through that noise, lean on your trade associations, lean on trusted sources of of information to get the real story on these members, on these candidates, um, what the issues are, what the reality of these playing fields are. Um, And, you know, particularly in, in elections like this, um, you know, it, it, misinformation is easy. Uh, and, I, you know, David probably are, would, would agree with me. It, with, with right money, it's incredibly easy to manipulate people who are paying very little attention to these issues. Mm-hmm. And people do that on a regular basis. That's They, they, they make a lot of money doing that. Um, so, you know, really, really be discerning about where you're getting your information from. And And to David's point, engage, engage, engage. Show up. Vote. Talk to your members. Talk to us communicate with us about what you need, um, and, and, and keep that pipeline of information going. We cannot afford to let up the pressure on our elected representatives for what this industry needs. We are too small and providing too big a benefit to the economy, uh, to, to, to let up that pressure. Um, everyone has that responsibility.
0: Very well said, Ethan. And again, for our listeners, thanks for, uh, tuning in to the Cattleman's Call conversation here today as uh, we look at uh, election 2022 and how the midterms will impact agriculture, rural America, and the nation in the months and uh, two years to come. Friends, that will do it for today. Thank you to Ethan Lane with NCBA's DC office and David Watts for joining us. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.